This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In a soldier's Welcome back to Dylan Through the Decades, our mini-series that explores the life and music of the one and only Bob Dylan. In our last episode, we discussed Dylan's much-maligned gospel era, a series of massive mid-80s charity events that put Bob center stage, Bob's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which ironically happened right in the midst of his commercial and critical low point. And finally, his late 80s revival, thanks to the Traveling Wolverines, and also a partnership with producer Daniel Lenoir. Bob struggled mightily through the 80s, as he had to lean heavily on his rock star buddies, as well as his past work, to serve as the smoke and mirrors he would need to make his way through the decade. We begin this episode by discussing the home video release of a project Bob participated in during the last decade. The 1987 film Hearts of Fire was first seen in America on VHS tapes in 1990. Bob had a starring role in the film Hearts of Fire, as well as the soundtrack, as an aging rock star named Billy Parker. We then move to the sour notes that Bob opened the 90s with, which were a pair of lackluster albums in 1990. First, an album called Under the Red Sky, which was a star-studded production with very little to show for it. A month later, he reteamed with his Wilburys buddies for their sophomore slump second album, which marked the end of the line for that supergroup. Look out your window, the grass ain't green. In the fall of 1982, some of the biggest names in the music industry came together for a massive celebration to mark the 30th year of Bob's career. But you and I, we've been through that. This is not our thing. Let us not talk falsely now. The hour is getting late. George Harrison, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Eric Clapton, Chrissy Hind, Stevie Wonder, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, and several more of Bob's iconic contemporaries would share the stage to play Bob's music and remind fans of how much they loved it. There's a battle outside and it's raging. You'd as soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they're changing. But this wasn't just a nostalgia trip. Artists like Eddie Vedder, Tracy Chapman, 
and Sinead O'Connor also performed to show that Bob's music was as relevant in 1992 as it ever was. While the audience went wild as Bob finally came out on stage for the finale, they had also jeered quite loudly earlier in the night, as not everything had gone according to plan. Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor. Okay, turn this up. This hectic show may have been Bob's breaking point when it came to rock and roll, as he would change his musical direction soon afterwards. In 1992 and 1993, he released a pair of acoustic, traditional folk albums that marked an abrupt return to his earliest musical roots. I got blood in my eyes for you, baby, I don't care what in the world. Bob had been missing on the Billboard charts for years at this point, but these projects showed that Bob would have different measures of success going forward. And as we move into 1996, the charts would once again include the Dylan name. But this time, it would be Bob's son Jacob and his band, The Wallflowers, that would deliver one of the year's biggest hits. Just a year after that, Bob would repartner with producer Daniel Lenoir to finally deliver the proper follow-up to his 1989 comeback record, Oh Mercy. That album would be 1997's Time Out of Mind. I'm sick of love And I'm in the thick of it Which brought Bob roaring back into the public consciousness with a Grammy Award for Album of the Year. And the Album of the Year is Time Out of Mind. <laughs> Along with one of the most infamous moments in Grammy history to boot, Bob stumbled into the 1990s aimless and nearing collapse. After a rowdy celebration with his rock star buddies, he would take a breath and recalibrate his career path. He would first steady himself with Two Roots Records, and then produce what is widely considered to be his late era masterpiece. So let's talk about how all this came to be. It's time to pour yourself a glass of Heaven's Door whiskey, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle Bob's music and stories from that era. This is Dylan Through the Decades Part 4, Bob Dylan in the 1990s. Well, I've been pacing around the room So we, he ended on a pretty strong note. Now, we're going to start off today talking about a project that was produced and originally released in the 80s 
but because we had so much to talk about last time, we put it off to this one just because of time constraints. But the technicality that we get away with is that the film Hearts of Fire was not released on video until 1990, which is always a good sign. The movie comes out for a two-week theatrical run in the UK in 1987, gets put on the shelf until 1990 for the US video release. That's, that's a sign of a winner, right? Oh yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's like every Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> right. Fifteen years ago, he walked away from the spotlight, the screaming fans, and the willing women. Why'd you walk away from it? I mean, you were really big. Now he's back to help a young girl make it to the top. Hey, Billy, I can't do it without you. And I gotta do it, Billy. To teach a superstar how to stay there. Now, there's no such thing as a big star. The better you are, the bigger the trap. And to discover for himself that the fire still burns. I'll have the usual eye. Wait, wait a minute! Let him go! I love you. You're using her, man. You're just using her. You're going to leave her hanging and walk away. Now, one of today's most acclaimed young actors, Rupert Everett. One of tomorrow's hottest singers, Fiona. And in the role that takes you beyond the legend, Bob Dylan. Hearts of Fire. So we watched Hearts of Fire. It was on Voodoo, right? It was. Okay, so we watched Hearts of Fire, and we also watched the 30th anniversary concert on the same night, which was a hell of a double feature. A couple of recurring characters in both. So let's talk about Hearts of Fire first. What are your first impressions of Hearts of Fire? So Dylan's surprisingly good in it. Yeah. But if, uh, there, if there's a saving grace in the film, it's, it's Dylan actually does an okay, he's a passable as an actor in it. The story with this movie is that Bob plays a character named Billy Parker, who is a cynical, burnt-out rock star, and basically he falls in love with a very young, up-and-coming female vocalist who kind of partners with him, and then... She falls for a younger, hotter rock star, played by Rupert Everett. And then there's sort of a love triangle. For, for Rupert Everett, good actor, horrendous in Hearts of Fire. <laughs> yes. I, I think Bob's pretty good in the movie, mostly because the movie doesn't ask him to do anything. It's just him playing him. Well, He talks like him. It's his mannerisms. He's playing an old rock star. He's got his rock star buddies, uh, Ronnie Wood and Richie Havens, you know, hanging out on set. You know. But it does ask him to do a couple things that are okay. really rock star, which is throw a punch. Yes. You done good, boss. Hey! The big dramatic scene in the film, Bob punches Rupert Everett. Everett confronts Bob in his hotel room, which he has just trashed. Again, that was the other rock star scene I was going to say. Like, also trash a trash, uh, hotel room, which we know Bob Dylan hates when people trash hotel rooms. Do you remember when they go outside and they see all the junk that he's thrown out <laughs> onto the street? But I like, wanted Donovan to be there. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> you throw this shit out there. <laughs> this is you, Donovan. <laughs> You're a big noise. You're a big noise. I'm a small Billy, noise. what's his name in the movie? Billy Parker. You're a big noise, Billy Parker. <laughs> I'm a small noise. I'm Donovan. <laughs> so, uh, well, I think we could just leave it as uh, saying Bob's punch that he throws is very funny. 
It's an absolute just haymaker roundhouse like it's a roundhouse punch. He's, it's like how a very young child would throw a punch if he was mad. Right? I feel like if you landed it though, oh sure, and he does. It would be insane. But Bob is ninety-five pounds. <laughs> So, uh, what did you think of the music in the film? Do you remember any of it? Dylan's song, The Usual, is good. Yeah. 50,000 kisses later, she was a housewife. She was good, I was kind. I'm not filthy, but I'm standing in line. I'll have the usual So he covers uh, a John Hyatt song called The Usual. That's supposed to be his in-universe big hit from the 60s or 70s or whatever. Uh, I will say I looked up the original version, the John Hyatt version of the usual. That's a good fucking song. I like both versions. Quite Dylan's a lot. version's good too. Yeah, yes. though, that's a good song. I wonder the extent to which Dylan had the ability to choose that. Yeah, if there was any yeah. It felt like, oh sure, this could be an old hit that it brings back. It's, it was authentic in the film. Yeah, yeah it felt good. Song. It was cool seeing Ronnie Wood, Richie Havens, and the famous sexy sex man Tim Capello all in bit roles. Tim Capello most famous movie role is the shirtless sax man from the Lost Boys. <laughs> he does not play sax in this movie. He plays drums in this movie. But if you're a fan of the Lost Boys and you want to see that sax man in another role, yeah, hey, here he is. It was cool seeing Richie Havens in anything in the 80s. Like, yeah. He is the most underrated, I think, singer-songwriter of his generation. So, yeah, I like yeah. seeing him in the movie. But anyways, other than that. Okay. So, any last comments on... Hearts of Fire. Watch it. Yeah. Definitely go and spend the money and give that money to whoever, I don't know who owns the rights to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because that's the other thing. you got to see it streaming, or a, a bootleg, I guess, because good luck finding a VHS or DVD on YouTube. I genuinely don't think it ever made the jump to DVD, and VHS copies are few and far between. So it's on Voodoo right now. If you want to see it, you have to stream it. My last word on this movie is if you look up the trailer on YouTube. This is arguably one of the single most dishonest trailers ever put for a movie because it makes it look like there's some sort of car chase, like this is some sort of action movie. Yeah. And like when you see the actual movie and you see how disingenuous that trailer cut is, it's very funny that they had no idea how to sell this. <laughs> all right, all right. We spent way too much time on this goofball movie. We didn't even give this attention to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. So let's move on to Bob's actual musical output. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. He starts off the 90s with the record Under the Red Sky, released in September of 1990, which marks the third decade in a row where his first release of the decade is considered one of his worst. Self-Portrait in 1970, Saved in 1980, Under the Red Sky 1990. This is infamously was hated by the critics. It was considered a major backslide after Oh Mercy. Part of the reason for that is the album starts off with a song called Wiggle Wiggle, and I'll play a clip of that here. And a lot of Dylan fans will tell you this is the worst song he's ever done. So, what are some of your thoughts on the record Under the Red Sky? Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> did you feel the same way listening to this that you did when you were listening to Empire Burlesque or Knocked Out Loaded? It's almost worse in a way because we kind of had the hope of like Oh Mercy. Yeah. Which is a pretty good album. And there's a sense of, I, I feel like, where it's like, oh, he's kind of coming out of that, where the 80s are behind us. And then he produces a couple songs that are like lullabies or something. They're oh, like, yeah. They're, they're, they're like children's songs. And also, it's sloppy. Yeah, which is a little odd. 
because there's a ton of pros, celebrity guests on this. Some of the famous musicians that appear on this record are David Crosby, George Harrison, Slash, Bruce Hornsby, Elton John, Jimmy, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. And it was produced by uh, Don Was. Yeah, but you don't, you don't get the sense that any of them are on the album. That's a good point. It feels like he used them as like studio musicians. And honestly, like you get big names to do studio musician stuff, it's going to be worse than studio musicians doing. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a really good point. They're they're hanging out with their buddy, and uh, sure, I'll play this, and you know, and it just kind of turns out mediocre. So, a song called "Unbelievable" was the single. It did not chart on the Hot 100. Nothing of Bob's charted on the Hot 100 uh, in the 1990s. I think the title track is pretty good. It's okay. Yeah, I like the title track, and I like another one called Handy Dandy. Mm-hmm. Handy Dandy, just like sugar and candy. I'm partial to TV talking song. Do you like the lyrics on it? I, I love it, yeah. I think there's, there's a... First of all, the lyrics across the entire song are fantastic. I, I will say there, there's a specific lyric that I think... He's referencing TV. I think you could reference just about any medium. Okay. Um, where he says, your, your mind is your temple... Keep it beautiful and free. Don't let an egg get laid in it by something you can't see. The news of the day is on all the time. All the latest gossip, all the latest rhyme. Your mind is your temple. Keep it beautiful and free. Don't let an egg get laid in there by something you can't see. Yeah, I like that. It's gorgeous. That's I think pretty, that's good. But the lyrics on that song, I think, across the board are it's good, Dylan. Do you think the problem with this record is the production and not the writing? I mean, I, I definitely think Wiggle Wiggles. <laughs> High level Dylan right now. Wiggle Wiggle it, it, Wiggle like stuff. a bowl of soup. It's, it's, on, it's very uneven. Like, 2 by 2 has some good stuff in it, but the whole the whole song's not good. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a, it's a an uneven record. And I feel like they, they tried to use bringing in big names to make up for the, the fact that Dylan was writing sloppy yeah. Songs. And I think he didn't care. I don't think he cared as much. He was in his Wilburys thing. Yep. And we'll talk about it in a minute with the other two yep. albums they did in the 90s before Time Out of Mind. Yeah. I think that Dylan, up until this point, was trying to write original songs that sucked to fill up his obligations to the studio and to oh. just put out music and to just keep composing. And I think that at some point in the 90s, he figured out, like, you know, I'm pretty good at interpreting stuff, like traditional stuff. Maybe I should, when I'm like in kind of a, when I'm in the position where I'm not, I'm not feeling like writing new material. Maybe I should just do covers of traditional and and sort of American standards. Yeah. And I think he's kind of, but anyways, we'll we'll get into that later. But I think that that's, I think this is the last album he made where it was like purely filler. He was oh, writing okay. crap music because he felt like he was obliged to do so. And then his next two albums after this are kind of like, you know, I I'm gonna do heartfelt renditions and good arrangements of classic American songs, traditional like ballads and things. Well, two things we could probably guess from this is one, we know how he views albums. He does not view albums as these ultimate statements of the music on them. You know, these are not the definitive versions of the songs that he writes. These are not meant to be like, hallmarks of his career they're meant to just be vehicles for the songs and obviously if you have that mentality then you're probably not opposed to rushing through like you say filler 
you know, just to get it out there. So that's an interesting way to look at it. So we're going to get touch on those albums in just a minute. Let's talk about another uh, <laughs> project with a lot of filler on it. Traveling Wilburys Volume 3, released just a month after this one, October of 1990. It is mischievously titled Volume 3. It's their second album. Look out your window. The grass ain't green. It's kind of yellow. See what I mean. This is very much the sophomore slump, commercially and critically. There's a couple of songs that I don't mind. Right after Wilbury's One was released, uh, Roy Orbison sadly died. Yeah. And the band just isn't the same. Right. No, I agree with that. I feel like the problem with the sophomore slump is that you have to come If you've made two albums and your sophomore slump is your last album, that's it. Yeah. It's amazing that they were able to produce what they did with the first album. This album's like a bunch of mediocre crap. Yeah, I think the first album was genuinely lightning in a bottle, where they were all yeah. in a good place. There was no pressure on them to deliver something big. They just kind of did it by accident. And then with the second one, Petty has at least said that there were some expectations here. And again, this is another one that was sort of rushed. It felt like they tried to bring in, I'm trying to think of the tracks, but like they tried to bring in some of the sort of like rockabilly, or yeah. kind of like that, the, the Orbison stuff, and it was horrible. Yeah. Without him on it. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I liked Poor House. Okay. I think the one I like on here is one of the singles. I actually, I don't mind both the singles. Inside Out is pretty good, and Wilbury Twist is, I guess, kind of funny. Yeah. It's dumb, but it's kind of funny. Probably the dumbest song on the album. Here's my hot take. Dumbest song on the album is uh, Tom Petty's Store It in a Cool, Dry Place. And when you check the manual, you kept inside the case. It said, put it in a cool, dry place. So I love that song. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best songs on the album in my mind. I, stick I, up for it. We'll stick up for it. Because it's just about how to take care of like artifacts and things. It's very direct. It's not. There's no pretension to that song. It's like Patty can be a pretentious guy. They all, all these be. artists can't. Maybe not playing. Like they, they, they can be pretentious. That's a very direct song about like just the start of the cool drive place. Do you think any of the songs here would fit in on Wilbury's one? I would have said cool drive place. Okay. But apparently, you really disagree <laughs> with that. I. It's that's a fun song. I don't think it's a bad song. I think it's a dumb song. <laughs> I don't think really any of these would have fit in on Wilbury's one because I kind of like you were saying, just like all of this felt like filler. If you listen to it back to back with that first one, you are going to be thinking, what were they doing? Yeah, it's night, it's night and day. Yeah. And it's interesting because like they were all working on bigger stuff right around this one. This one came out between Full Moon Fever and Into the Great Wide Open for Petty. Yeah. So... This is clearly a pet project for him at this point. Lennon Harrison went on to do the Beatles Anthology project a few years later. And then uh, <laughs> the guy who doesn't get any credit at all, the drummer for the Traveling Wilburys, Jim Keltner, Buster Sideberry, uh, we should give him some credit. He's a, a good drummer and a longtime Bob drummer, so he would go on to work with Bob on uh, a number of their albums we're going to talk about today. I would say, though, that, that Dylan was not doing anything bigger than this. At the That's time. a good point. <laughs> He was going to go on to Good As I've Been To You. Yeah. 
Well, not quite yet. One big thing in between, and that was the second of the films we watched in our Dylan movie night, the 30th anniversary concert celebration, a.k.a. Bobfest, which was recorded in October 1992. This was basically marking Bob's 30th year as a recording artist. The lineup for this is truly jaw-dropping. You mentioned it when we first talked about uh, in our first Bob uh, podcast, but I don't know a lot of people who are aware of this CD. Yeah, they you should know. be. Yeah, this is one of the biggest TV concert events, I think, of all time, based on the lineup alone. Yeah. I'm aware of it only because my mom decided to like leave PBS on, and she was like, oh, it's Bob Dylan, I like Bob Dylan. And we watched it when I was like six, and uh, it was... It was it introduced me to Bob Dylan. This is this is what got me started on my love of Bob. Wow. So John Mellencamp opens the show with like a Rolling Stone. Chris Christopherson sort of serves as the host MC of the night. Uh, he introduces most of the acts. Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready from Pearl Jam play Masters of War. Tracy Chapman covers the times they are a changin'. Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash come out and sing It Ain't Me Babe. And if you're not picking up on it, I think it's such a huge compliment to the special that they were able to match up the songs with the artists who played them. Tracy Chapman covering The Times They Are Changing is inspired music casting, if you will. Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready doing Masters of War. I wasn't particularly taken with that version, but of everybody who showed up to this concert, those were the two guys who absolutely should have sang the same. They still do it in concerts. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's that Pearl Jam's the buzz. Yeah, that's great. That's very appropriate for who they are as a band. Willie Nelson came out and sang What Was It You Wanted. That was off of Oh Mercy. So that's the only song from the 80s of Bob's that was included in the show. That might be my only criticism of the show, is that all of this is from Bob's 60s and early 70s output. I think they could have incorporated some of the lesser-known elements of his career into the show. So, what was it I wanted? More 80s Dylan. <laughs> yeah, and only you. Right. <laughs> I suspect you and I are going to agree that one of the highlights was uh, the Clancy Brothers coming out to sing When the Ships Come In. The hour that the ship comes in And the seas will sail and the ship will my favorite songs might be my favorite cover of a Dylan song what's cool about the, when the Clancy Brothers do it is it sounds like a traditional Irish song it sounds like a song that got passed down for like a couple hundred years and got toyed with and played and the lyrics changed and everything else and then it became this traditional like Irish ballad but it's not. It's a Dylan song, and they sang it exactly the way it was done on the original album. Yeah. And it's perfect. I feel like it sounds exactly like a bunch of Irish guys should be singing that in a bar about the, the, the fishing ships coming in. Yeah. It's not a political thing at all, and I think Dylan would probably agree with that. It's not, it's not a political song, necessarily. It's just a song about the fishing ships coming in. That's a band that really inspired Bob in the beginning. The night of that show, after the show was done... Those were the guys that Bob hung out with. I see that. Yeah. Fresh off of Hearts of Fire, Ronnie Wood and Richie Havens also appear. <laughs> and uh, leads me to think, well, why didn't they sing the usual? 
Yeah, which is fair. I think they they did two of the best songs on the special. Richie the Hayes. They didn't play and it. Ronnie Wood too. I oh really? Say. Oh for sure. I think I think Ron Wood's version of uh, Seven Days is better than Dylan's version. He's kind of doing a Dylan impression, but I don't know enough about Ron Wood. I, I have not heard enough of, of, of Ronnie Wood's vocals to make that. Does he sound like that? Does he sound yeah. like a poor man's Dylan all the time? Ron, like, Ron Wood, even in his prime. I would say sounds like Bob does it. Well, he has a very rough voice. It works, and I feel like yeah, I feel like it's a really great song. And then Richie Havens, just like a woman, I think is powerful. Okay. I love it. I I'm a huge Richie Havens fan. I also have to mention Foot of Pride, uh, the Lou Reed version of Foot of Pride. To me, I might be the standout track on the entire thing. I love it. And I have to take back now what I said about what was that you wanted being the only 80s Dylan song because Foot of Pride was recorded that's during in, that's Infidel's yeah. session. It was not on Infidel's. No. It was an outtake. So super props to Lou for finding it like a studio outtake and thinking like, I'll do that song. Well, also Lou Reed kind of is known to kind of hate Dylan. Oh, is so that right? From, that's my understanding. So <laughs> he's thrown a lot of shade, we'll say. No kidding. Okay. In the past, he's, he's an asshole. Yeah. He was an asshole. He's a Love his music. But he was kind of known as being an asshole. Sure. But he, he threw a lot of shade at Dylan, and I think it's so cool that he chose this sort of real deep cut of Foot of Pride and made it his own. It's a great version of it. Easily the most obscure song in the whole show. Yeah. Yeah, and he did a really good version. And it brought attention to it, too, because there's some great lyrics in there. Mm-hmm. All right, later in the show, Neil Young comes out and does a version of All Along the Watchtower that I think is absolutely the highlight of the show. You know, when you have a Jimi Hendrix version of that song that sort of just towers over even Dylan's original, it's pretty brave to come out and think, yeah, I'm going to do that song, I'm also going to do a hard rock version of that song. But to Neil's credit, he fucking nails it. It is a hard rock version of the song, and early 90s Neil Young slamming on the guitar is fucking as, just as rock and roll as it gets. What does he do? The last song of the night before Bob's appearance is Roger McGinn from The Birds coming out to sing Mr. Tambourine Man. Yeah. Was that an appropriate choice? Yeah, I think it makes sense. Do you find it interesting that Peter, Paul, and Mary were not invited? No, Joe, because they're crap. <laughs> Here's the thing, like, Simon and Garfunkel, or something like that, they transcended. Peter, Paul, and Mary did not. So a better question would be, is there anyone that you feel could have been at this show, maybe should have been? Baez. Big time, yeah. That's the only one I can really think, like, what should have been there. Wow, Because yeah. the band was there. I mean, that's that's his big collaborators. I feel like are Joan Baez and, and the band. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else, but Baez. Okay. I'm going to agree with you. Mm-hmm. That's a big whiff. So, to wrap up the uh, 30th anniversary, Bob comes out and sings, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. And then the whole group comes back on stage to do a rousing version of My Back Pages and Knock It On Heaven's Door. My back pages seems to be considered the high point of the whole show because yeah. you know all the big superstars Harrison, Petty, Clapton, etc., uh, get a verse. And as it turns out, that happens to be the closest we ever got to a live performance from the Traveling Wolverines. I didn't even think of that. That's yeah. true. Keltner yeah. was on stage, I believe. Bob's there. 
Petty's there. Harrison's there. Lynn, Lynn is not there. I don't think Lynn was. Yeah. Either way, it's the closest we ever got. Well, we know that's one of my favorite Dylan songs. And maybe, maybe because I saw that early on, it was such a great rendition. I don't know. Yeah, but. absolutely. Okay, so now the one artist who was a part of this show that we haven't mentioned yet is Sinead O'Connor. So Sinead O'Connor makes big news by ripping up a photo of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live on October 3rd, 1992. This Bobfest concert was recorded on October 16th, 1992, and Sinead O'Connor was booked as part of the lineup. Sinead was supposed to sing I Believe in You, which was originally from Bob's album Slow Train Coming, which we have both like quite Love a bit. It. Yeah, it's good. And this would have been the only song from his gospel era that would have been a part of the show. Unfortunately, she never got a chance to sing it as part of the concert. Chris Christopherson brings her on stage by saying, I'm real proud to introduce this next artist whose names become synonymous with courage and integrity. Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor. She comes out on stage and is booed immediately and loudly, and it does not let up. The band starts to try to play the song, and she waves them off, tells them to stop, and with no musical accompaniment, shouts the lyrics to the same Bob Marley song, War, that she had done on SNL in extreme defiance of the audience. Yeah. <laughs> One big fuck you to the crowd. And then she just storms off stage. I personally think that it's déclassé for the audience to act that way in that context. I think that what's done is done. Mm-hmm. Let the artist perform. So for me, I, I would have said, I, I think that they should just allow her to perform. Okay. So in her book, she writes, I feel like Bob Dylan is the one who should have come out and told his audience to let me sing. And I'm pissed that he didn't. So I just glare at him in the wings as if he's my big brother who's just told my parents I skipped school. He stares back at me, baffled. He's looking all handsome in his white shirt and pants. It's the weirdest 30 seconds of my life. The word baffled. No, handsome. Oh, <laughs> handsome's the word. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Baffled is about right. Yeah. That had that that would have to be his reaction. Well, we've seen his induction to Gordon Lightfoot in the like we know he's baffled by just like you know a few TV screens. Yes, I can definitely see him being baffled. I think I think baffled's correct. He's probably like, why are you looking at me? Yeah, and they're booing you because you ripped up the picture of the Pope. Like, <laughs> right, and also because you... you didn't sing the song of mine that you were supposed just to start, sing. Just start singing it. You sang Who cares a, if they're booing? Yeah, you sang a Bob Marley song. That's the wrong Bob. I'm Bob. Yeah. Bobby D, not Bobby M. I like to think that Bob was just totally, like, he didn't see the SNL sketch, and he yeah, was totally he oblivious, no and he was just like, why is, why is this bald man yelling at the audience? Bald <laughs> Like, he why had no this, idea who Why is, is this bald Scottish man? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just totally off. What do you want him to do? I Like, she's looking at like, like, my big brother. It's like, no, it's not like, he gave you up. It's like... You did this on national TV. You ripped up a picture of one of the most popular popes of all time. That's on you. We're both a little critical of her. Uh, the rehearsal version of I Believe in You was released on the special edition of the 30th anniversary uh, DVD CD. And I will say to her credit, 
her version is absolutely gorgeous. It is. And it is a shame that the audience didn't give her a chance because it would have been very beautiful to hear that as part of the show and it would have fit in with the show and represented a part of his career that we've been talking about now uh, for a couple of episodes. The Gospel Era is some of his best stuff and deserved a spot at this show. So I think that would have been a nice opportunity. I 100% agree. Okay, so we can at least give her that. Now, before we get to the next two albums, here's a question for you. Was this concert Bob's farewell to rock music? Oh, interesting. Oh, because... I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, because Wilbury's 3 and Under a Red Sky are definitely rock albums. But the rest of the music we're going to talk about today probably doesn't fall into the classic rock or even rock and roll category. We're going to be talking about folk, traditional, blues... You know, we're, we're, we're getting pretty far yeah. away from rock. No, I'm, th- I'm thinking through everything he's made subsequently, even past the 90s. And right. The, and uh, that's a really good point. I mean, even like Love and Theft, which is we'll talk about that later. I mean, the 2000s has some stuff that's, but it, that'd be more like old school R&B than it would yeah. be like true, like kind of classic rock. It's not the last electric music he ever made. but like, No, no, no. You know, if his rock period started with, like, a Rolling Stone in the mid-60s, yeah. he almost made it 30 years yeah. in that genre as well. So I just think that's an interesting uh, marker point. Let's push forward a little bit here to the next album he released, which was called Good As I've Been To You in October 1992. As we already said, this album is all traditional uh, songs or folk covers. This is not out of step with music he's produced in the past. No. Obviously, he got his start doing folk and traditional music. So it's a return to form. What do you think of it? I think that, like what I said earlier, is what, what's happening, where he's starting to realize that when he can't write, instead of trying to rush albums and produce subpar music, yeah. he's just going to start doing covers. Yeah. You know, to me, it's kind of like a, a, a turkey sandwich on, like, white bread, where it's like, this is something I could eat every day, mm-hmm. but it's not anything that's, like, going to blow my mind. Yeah, I was going to say, when I listened to it once, there was a song on there called Tomorrow Night that I like. Tomorrow night Will you remember what you said tonight Tomorrow night Will all the thrill be gone But if I'm being perfectly honest, and I talked about this in our first episode about the 60s, this folk music doesn't do it a whole lot for me. And the difference now between, you know, 30 years ago uh, in the 60s is that his voice is not what it was in the 60s. It's not necessarily bad, it's different. It's much more ragged, much more raw. So I think some people would actually really like that about uh, the performances here. Yeah. But for me, it's just a little rough on the ears. Yeah, I can understand that. For me, I like the album. It yeah. was not a bad album. For me, the only song that really stuck for me is I like his cover of Jim Jones. Okay. Uh, traditional. I mean, then also, I'll talk about later on, but he does have an outtake, You Belong to Me. Okay. Which ended up on Oliver Stone's soundtrack for National Board Killers. Yeah. Uh, I really like that song. Okay. I have no idea why he didn't include it in the album. <laughs> this has always been the thing with him. He just leaves some of the best stuff on the cutting room yeah. floor. 
It's a great cover. Stuff that made the album, really, it's like, yeah, Jim Jones is good. And then, yeah, Froggy Went to Court and is such a classic. His version's, it's okay. Is your opinion of World Gone Wrong, uh, which was released a year later in October 1993, any different? This is another acoustic folk and blues record. This one was recorded and produced in London. And I would say I enjoyed it a little bit more than good as I've been to you. I agree. I think it's a little bit better of an album. I love the title track. I think okay. his, his his version of World Gone Wrong is great. Yeah. Delia is pretty good. Again, I'm not going to hate on anything on the album. They're all solid covers from a really, I think, decent ranger and just musician and artist. But there, there's nothing earth-shaking on the album. If you like Bob's folk music from the 60s, I would have to think that these two records back-to-back would be something you would like because they are so traditional and there's such a strong connection to his uh, early days. Yeah. If, you know, if you're a Dylan Folk fan, here's the revival you've been waiting for. Well, I don't even know if that's the case. I feel like the closest analogy would be his first album, would be the 62 Bob Dylan album. Yeah. Uh, let's keep plugging away here, and we'll plug away with MTV Unplugged. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, much like seemingly every artist who was active in the 90s, showed up for MTV Unplugged and recorded a special in November 1994, released May 95. I would say it's a nice little live album if you're a fan of MTV Unplugged. I am not at all. I think his version of Desolation Row and then maybe With God on Our Side, his closer for that, are better than maybe the album versions or are up there with the album versions. Okay. So we're going to get a little bit off of Bob's story here for a moment to focus on the story of one of his offspring. Jacob Dylan. In May 1996, Jacob Dylan's band, The Wallflowers, released their second album, Bringing Down the Horse, and it includes a massive smash hit single, One Headlight. number two on the Billboard charts, and I think that's significant because that is the same pop success height that Bob had with Like a Rolling Stone and your favorite, Rainy Day Women. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot to say about the Wallflowers. Is that a band that you ever got into? No. No? (laughs) Recently I watched a documentary about the West Coast scene. They have like the Laurel Canyon sound. And he, I think, was instrumental in like making the documentary. That's pretty cool. He was he was he was in it. He spoke a lot about sort of the influence of like Joe Walsh and Fleetwood Mac and some of those other artists that that kind of came out of the West Coast sound in like the sort of late sixties, early seventies. That was fun, you know. And I, and I, I kind of applaud him for that for taking the time to make that happen. Okay, let's move forward a little bit to probably the biggest success Bob had in the nineties. The widely beloved album Time Out of Mind, which was released in September of The lead-off single for Time Out of Mind is a song called Love Sick, and that is also the song, a little trivia, that was used in the infamous Victoria's Secret commercial that Bob did. I'm sick of love 
the thick of it This kind of love I'm so sick of it The song I like from this record is the second song on the album, Dirt Road Blues. It's got a cool vibe to it. This isn't the same acoustic folk music in the previous two records, but this also isn't rock and roll. This is much more blues, yeah. you know, a little R&B. Country vibe to some of the yeah. stuff. Yeah. Something that maybe you'd hear in like a saloon. Okay, there's some rockabilly, rockabilly elements to it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a cool sound. And people noticed uh, because this one won a Grammy for Album of the Year. We can talk about that in a minute here, but I want your opinion on Time Out. Yeah, so I listened to it years ago and liked it and kind of put it in the same sort of like camp as some of the other stuff he did in the 90s. It's like, yeah, it's good and just it's not my thing. Now, listening to it several times in preparation for the, the, the podcast, I think it may be like one of my favorite Dylan albums. It's up there, it's certainly in the top five. I think it's the best thing he, he's done since Blood on the Tracks. Okay. It's really good. I don't think there's a bad song on the album. This is also produced by Daniel Lenoir, who did... Oh Mercy with Bob and I will say this feels much more like a successor to Oh Mercy than any of the other stuff he did in the 90s and it's a credit to Lenoir that he now twice in two decades rescued Bob's faltering career at the end of both decades I know they had a tug of war in the studio with you know how certain songs you know were gonna go but that collaboration turned out two of his best records from that era. What I'll say is I feel like Dylan allowed Lenoir to do a lot more with Oh Mercy yeah. in terms of the direction of that album and not necessarily to the benefit of Oh Mercy. It's a good album, mm-hmm. but I don't love it. I don't like love Lenoir. It's mm-hmm. one of the best things he did in the 80s, but it's not amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like Time Out of Mind is just so good maybe because Dylan kind of started getting his bearings again and fought back against like the overproduction of mm-hmm. Oh Mercy and some of the other problems, maybe Lenoir, who, as you've always said, hey, he's a U2 guy. Yep. I mean, overproduction. Yep. Definitely, that's that's U2. I just feel like Time Out of Mind plays so well because it's it, maybe because it's, you know, Dylan or Jack Frost, as he likes to go by when he's a producer, right. kind of <laughs> has a tendency to really underproduce. And yep. maybe Lenoir kind of helped it out in terms of pushing back against that impulse. And they just hit that sweet spot, right level of production. I think so. And I know Dylan doesn't like love this album. I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. I, I love it. So he wins the Grammy for Album of the Year. Yeah. He beats out The Day by Babyface, This Fire by Paula Cole, Flaming Pie by Paul McCartney, which was produced by Jeff Lynne, and OK Computer by Radiohead. Do you think he should have beat all of them? Yeah. So, I'm not super familiar with the Babyface album, Mm -hmm. is it Paula Cole? Paula Cole. Or or Paul McCartney's Flaming Piece, is that what it's? (laughs) Flaming Pie. Flaming Pie, I'm sorry. Flaming Piece of Pie. Right. Uh, No, I'm I'm not super familiar with those albums. I think I like this album more than I like OK Computer. Oh, okay. But if I look at the history of rock and the history of popular music, OK Computer is probably more important than this album. Yeah, I follow that. Bob was announced as the winner by a very odd combination of celebrities. John Fogarty, Sheryl Crow, and Usher are the ones to bring him on stage, which I think just says it all about how weirdly cast... The Grammys are. Now, was Usher acting as, like, a celebrity in that capacity or as an actual Usher? Usher? (laughs) (laughs) 
You're welcome. Oh, You're welcome, boy. Joe, for that joke. You are. Uh, he's here all week, folks. <laughs> but what I noticed about his remarks is we've talked and laughed about how weird and out of place he always seems at these award ceremonies. If you watch <laughs> his remarks here, he thanks a whole bunch of people. He manages to be funny. He seems genuinely proud and excited of the album. He is coherent, charming. He seems weirdly comfortable. He was sober at this point, though. This is when he got his sobriety. Ah, uh, well, there That's you go. That's my understanding, at least. Okay. You read more of the biographies than I do. That's my understanding. It's like, this is the time period where he got cleaned. He, he cleaned up, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he was definitely in the 80s and early 90s, he was still drinking very hard. I don't know when exactly he cut back. I mean, he never quit drinking. My understanding I mean, we're looking did, at a I bottle of no, store. My understanding is he did quit drinking okay. and then came back to it yeah, yeah, yeah. in a much more diminished reasonable capacity in like okay. the early 2000s. Yeah, so maybe that's the explanation. He's on point with the speech and it was weird to see him in that condition given all the other clips of him <laughs> in public settings where he's just so weird. It's sort of a bummer because then he goes over to do a song from the album. He plays Lovesick. And what happens? The most infamous thing that's at least ever happened to him in the 90s. One of the most infamous moments of his entire career. A guy jumps from being in the background group of fans just kind of watching and clapping. Rips his shirt off. Exposes his chest with the words soy bomb written on him. Jumps right next to Bob and starts dancing like a maniac. And just crashes the show while Bob is singing during his big critical revival he wins one of the best awards you can get in the music industry this is his moment he is feeling good about where he's at and this doofus mike portnoy standing right next to him dancing like an idiot and apparently for like no real reason yeah well he's like a performance artist now right he's He's a performance artist in 2018 michael portnoy said about this It was such a perfect format to do something inscrutable, to inject some confusion into the mainframe. It felt like I couldn't get on that stage and not do something else. At that point in my life, I was working as a comedian. It was almost like telling a joke with my body. I mean, it looked like it. (laughs) Yes, it did look like a joke. And he gets like 20, 30 seconds of dancing before they pull him off stage. Bob doesn't miss a verse. No. He, He looks... He clearly sees the guy he steps back i think thinking security was going to rush on but they don't right away so he steps back to the mic and keeps singing if you're listening to the audio version you don't know that that guy's there what's more concerning is first of all i don't think it was security that she dragged portnoy off it right. looked like it was one of the extras it was one of the actually extras. was like this guy's not he like looked around like i don't think this guy's supposed to be on the stage he grabs him and like gave yep. him the security which good for good for that guy right I watched this happen live. My parents are oh. big on watching like the award shows. Like, okay. we do, yeah, we do like make like Ramaki and steaks and stuff for yeah. the award shows. I remember like it was big night. And, like we were watching the Grammys, and it's like, who is? And my, I think my dad was like, I think Dylan planted this guy. Like that was his thing. Oh. Like, this, this is. I think what's interesting about the whole thing is just that first of all, none of the other performers even look at the guy. Right. Dylan's Dylan even like references the fact that he's there. Doesn't miss a beat, but does look at him. And then looks around like, are you guys all seeing this? I'm convinced that this is not the first time in Dylan's mind this has happened. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it was that he was playing it cool because he's just a cool guy. I think it was just like, keep cool, Bob. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
looks funny. He doesn't look happy. No, he, he doesn't. He keeps it cool. But I mean, if I'm Bob, my thought process in seeing this is just like rage, seething yeah. rage. Like it has taken me 20 years to get the sort of critical review. I'm finally, you know, this is my moment. I've done what I've been trying to do for years and years, and this clown no. is not even making a statement. No, what he's actually thinking is, oh, God, it's the soy bomb again. <laughs> oh, the reoccurring nightmare. Oh, that's funny. If you go to the YouTube clip and you go through the comments, you will find a bunch of people saying, hey, that guy's dancing way better than anybody in the yeah. background. And, you know, well, he is. there's sort of a rock and roll element to that where it's like, yeah, hell yeah, he's obviously more into this than anyone else in the audience, backing crowd, or the band, you know? He's invested in it. Yeah. Because he's not just getting, he's not just like, oh, I'm on stage. He's like, I'm on stage. This is my moment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it comes at the expense of Bob's moment. All right. Well, we have gone on very long here, so I'm going to... <laughs> rush through a couple of high-profile Dylan covers that went on through the 90s and, you know, get your reaction to those, and then we'll wrap up with our favorites. So, first, let's go back to the Bob Fest. Of all the covers that are performed on that, what would you say are your favorites? Yeah, I definitely think Foot of Pride, Lou Reed's version of it is fantastic. Might be the best thing uh, on the album. Clancy Brothers' version of Ships Come In, stellar. Sounds like a traditional Irish folk song. Yeah. I think I really like uh, Tracy Chapman doing uh, The Times They Are Changing. Seven Days, the Ronnie Wood version of Seven Days, I really oh, like. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Richie Havens, yep. Just Like a Woman's really good, too. Those yeah. are the ones I really love. You know, I didn't even talk about his Wilburys, guys. I mean, I know you don't like this one, but Petty doing Rainy Day Women, that's fun for me. I know all of that is something you would hate. but uh, I mean, it makes sense. It's like Petty. Right, exactly. Yeah, it, it's very well fit. And I think uh, Mellencamp doesn't get enough credit for... Uh, opening the show with a bang with the you know obviously Bob's most famous song and doing a real just rock and roll version of it. It's just a fun way to open the show. So let's move on to uh, a couple of 90s Dylan covers and you know a couple of these might have answered my earlier question of who was missing. Guns N' Roses covered Knocking on Heaven's Door on their 1991 album Use Your Illusion 2. Knock, knock, knock it all So it's not totally unreasonable to think that maybe they could have showed up at Bob Fest. Yeah. In 2009, Axl Rose told a concert audience in Taiwan uh, a story about Knocking on Heaven's Door. He said, quote, Bob asked me, when are you going to record Heaven's Door? And I said, I don't know, but we really love that song. And he said, I don't give a fuck. I just want the money. <laughs> I love that. Like, I feel like that, that story makes me like Dylan more. Absolutely <laughs> it does. Because um, like you 2 Guns N' Roses used Knocking on Heaven's Door 
during their set from the beginning, and they still do today. I saw them at Summerfest this year, and they did like a 15-minute version of Knocking on Evan's Door. Ew. Yeah, it was like a big jam session. Okay. It was a little much. So they were famous for doing it live, and Bob was thinking, hey, you're one of the biggest bands in the world. Why aren't you putting that on record and making me a shit ton of money? Uh, I think that's great, too. Now, in 1991, Bob said this about their version, and I wonder what you think of this. He said, Guns N' Roses is okay, Slash is okay, but there's something about their version of that song that reminds me of the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. (laughs) I always wonder who's been transformed into some sort of clone and who stayed true to himself, and I never seem to have an answer. So is that a a very brutal dig? What year did he say that? The same year it came out, 91. The question yeah. becomes, is Axl Rose saying what he said a response to that? Oh, okay. Did Dylan actually say that? I mean, Dylan said this. This is on record. Yeah, but I'm yeah. saying, is Axl Rose saying that as a sort of, like, response to Dylan basically calling him a bunch of sellouts? Okay. That's uh, that's interesting. That would have been a near 20-year grudge that Axl held on to. And if it was anybody else, I would think that's weird. Now with no, Axl I was going to say. <laughs> I, I imagine Axl Rose, this is 2007, he's got the cornrows. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, hey, Taiwan! This guy, Dylan. I don't know. I, I feel like that's a great quote from Dylan. Yeah. Very funny. Okay, a couple more here. The Ramones, on one of their final albums, cover my back pages for a 1993 record called The Acid Eaters. I actually like this version. Acid Eaters is a big covers record, and the Ramones were always sort of a covers band. And much like many of their covers of classic 60s rock songs, uh, this one's pretty good. It's very good. I, I like the Ramones. Anything the Ramones do, honestly, even when it's bad, it's okay. Should the Ramones have shown up at them. the 30th anniversary? No. <laughs> no, it makes sense probably, at all. They were probably in pretty bad shape in 93 anyway. And then you tipped me off about this one. Billy Joel covers the song Make You Feel My Love in 1997 that is from time out of mind yes same year time out of mind comes out and his version is just garbage you're right <laughs> sorry it's whatever it's like anything billy joel does i like billy joel but we'll move on but more importantly garth brooks covers yeah. it in 1998 and that version of the song gets nominated for best male country vocal performance at the grammys and subsequently also gets a nomination for bob dylan for best country, country song. song, yeah, which is, I mean, he had a great run at the end of the night. Yeah, which is <laughs> some long overdue appreciation for Bob in the country yeah. world, and not unwarranted because you know we talk about Nashville Skyline being an underrated country record, and we're going to revisit this in later episodes with uh, Darius Rucker turning uh, was that Wagon Wheel, yeah, into a big hit, you know, and that was Nashville. just like something he wrote on a napkin, yeah, Wagon Wheel. That was a fragment of a song. And for the record, not Darius Rucker. The version Darius Rucker does is a cover of the Old Crow uh, Medicine Show. Oh, okay. But we can get into that. Okay, later yeah, on. that's yeah. now we're but talking covers. Anyways, yeah. okay. It's a cover of cover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that's what we're talking about here is that Bob has country roots. Yeah. And it's cool that he got a nominate, uh, Grammy nomination for those roots. Deep, deep country roots, I think. The collaborations he did with Cash and mm-hmm. everything, too. And I will say, it's a testament to how great the song To Make You Feel My Love is, that mm-hmm. not only, I mean, Billy Joel does a subpar version, <laughs> Garth Brooks does a, I think, a, a pretty, if you're a fan of that sort of slick 90s country, he does a good version. Yeah. 
Okay, and then finally of uh, some interesting covers in the 90s, the White Stripes cover One More Cup of Coffee on their 1999 debut album. I know you're a White Stripes guy. Like that version? Have you even thought about that version? Yeah, their version's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually, I heard that, their version of it before I heard Dylan's version of it. That's on the Bootleg series for Rolling Thunder, the One More Cup of Coffee. Okay. I actually, I bought that after the White Stripes album, so it's actually, I knew their version before I knew Dylan's version. Okay. Well, let's wrap it up here. I'm going to give you my three favorite albums from Bob in the 90s, and then we'll do our top five favorite songs. So I'll give you a moment here, and I will say my top three 90s Dylan records are Time Out of Mind, Under the Red Sky, and I don't care if this is cheating, the 30th anniversary concert. In that case, I would say A Time Out of Mind is number one for me across the board, then the 30th anniversary concert, and then I honestly, for me, it's a toss-up between Good As I've Been To You and Real Gone Wrong. Either one of those would be fine. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the Woolberries album's not terrible. Like any of those are fine. Okay, it's definitely not under the red sky. Putting under the red sky in mind is not a huge endorsement. There was just a handful of songs on there I didn't mind. The two acoustic albums that you mentioned didn't do a whole lot for me. I do feel they're interchangeable, and uh, I don't think much of that Wilburys record really much at all. I feel like under the red sky is a throwback to sort of some of the '80s music that you really enjoy. I don't mind. Or you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. That I do kind of mind <laughs> and don't really enjoy. Yes, fair enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and I also, in case you want to change your mind, I would have accepted the, the soundtrack to Hearts of Fire. <laughs> Moving on to my top five Bob songs from the 90s. And here's another one you're probably going to call me cheating on, but uh, this is one we've talked about. The Usual from Hearts of Fire. I love that. Handy Dandy from Under the Red Sky. That's, that's unforgivable. That's, that's fine. <laughs> the opening of that song reminds me of the opening of Like a Rolling Stone. That's nice. Okay. Uh, the title track from Under the Red Sky. Jesus, Joe. <laughs> uh, then I would say Dirt Road Blues from Time Out of Mind. And I will throw the Wilburys a bone with Inside Out. We have no... We're probably not even close. Well, no. So the I actually have a question mark in my notes next to the usual because I didn't know if you were going to count it or not. Okay. In which case, sure. that might knock out... I'm going to do six because I okay. feel like these are top... So for me, top three are all off of Time Out of Mind. To Make You Feel My Love, Love Sick, and Not Dark Yet, I think are canonical. I love those songs. Okay, Not, not Dark Yet probably would have been my uh, number six. That would have been your, kind of your dark horse. You're not dark yet, horse. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jesus. And I think, like, then after that, I mentioned it. You belong to me on the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Right. We don't do outtakes on this. No, so that, I'm that's cheating. Fine. But I will say that I, I feel like the the version that was the outtake from Good as I've Been to You better than the one that's on at the MBK soundtrack. Oh, that's fine. wow, got, we're going deep. Woody Harrelson in his little monologue at the end of the song in the soundtrack kind of <laughs> takes me out of it. Anyways. Okay. And then the only really salvable song off of Under the Red Sky is TV Talking Song. Oh, yeah. Got some great lyrics. I mentioned them earlier. Yep. But I, I would say The Usual would be the only one that potentially has oh. some overlap. I, I do like that song. That's terrific. His cover's good. 
Okay, so I'm sure there's a ton of fans who are unsubscribing to this podcast as we speak, but that's going to be the song that plays us out. His version of the usual, we both go to bat for it. All right, then looking forward to what's coming next. Obviously, it's going to be Dylan Through the Decades Part 5, Bob Dylan in the 2000s, the The, aughts. The Christmas special. Christmas special. (laughs) Yes, among other things, we're going to talk about the Wonder Boys soundtrack. We're talking about another film in which Bob plays a burnt-out old rock star. This movie is called Masked and Anonymous. I have never seen that, but we're going to have to watch that, have another movie night. And then the albums Love and Theft, Modern Times, Together Through Life, and like you said, Christmas in the Heart, the Christmas special. So hopefully we're going to get this up before Christmas, and that will serve as uh, Play That Rock and Roll's Christmas special, our conversation about uh, Christmas in the Heart. Okay. Just to wrap up, I need to cite a few sources here. Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan by Howard Sunez. This book has been the backbone of my research through this entire project. I can't recommend that book enough. And if you're looking for a Dylan biography that has even more pages, I would check out Bob Dylan, Behind the Shades Revisited by Clinton Halen. And then I also want to give props to Bob Dylan in London Troubadour Tales by Keith Miles. Keith was a recent guest on the show and in my interview with him we talk a little bit about World Gone Wrong and how that album was put together. So, with that any last words on Bob in the 90s? Time Out of Mind is a, I think the best album he's done since all the tracks and I highly recommend anybody who's not listened to it recently listen to it now. Absolutely. Okay, well, once again, Chris, thank you so much for joining us here. We'll see you next time for Christmas. Thank you, Joe. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast and subscribe to our youtube channel at youtube.com slash c slash play that rock and roll lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms as play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast and finally the big ask number four please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, 
you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.